0: Faith and Reason podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.
1: My original plan was simply to read the book out loud. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite short. Um, which is a virtue these days. Um, brevity is a virtue. Um, but then Logan told me I had only 30 minutes, so I, I'll have to stick to the first two-thirds of it. <laughs> um, I was very pleased to be invited to come here tonight, uh, not only because I like uh, coming to this place, um, uh, but I, 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 too, am very happy to see my old friend, uh, Logan Gage, um, as has already been mentioned, tonight's discussion is not about our current election. When I was approached to write this book uh, by Liguri Publications, they, they asked if I was interested in writing a book that was more or less a Catholic, informed Catholic voter guide. Uh, and I told them that as, as wonderful as that sounds, I, like most other people, was not actually interested in reading such a book, so I was not actually interested in writing such a book. Um, there are lots of voter guides out there. Um, some of them are quite good. I would recommend the the imperfect, but, but really quite good uh, voter guide that the Catholic bishops have put out, Forming Consciences for Faithful Citizenship. Um, but I wasn't interested in writing a voter guide. Uh, what I was interested in, however, was writing a book about Uh, citizenship for the other 364 days of the year that aren't the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November in an even-numbered year, which we call Election Day. Um, We hear a lot about Catholic citizenship and the obligations of of forming our consciences to vote. We hear a lot about that, we hear a lot about it, especially every four years when we have a presidential election. But the fact is, is that most of what we do as citizens, most of the work of citizenship happens and needs to happen long before we ever set foot in a voting booth. And that doesn't get talked about quite as much. Um, and I think that's a problem. I think it's a problem that's reflected in our politics as they play out. Now bear in mind that I started writing this book uh, and putting together the ideas for, the, for this book uh, before the specter of Trump and Hillary was really on the horizon. Uh, I started writing this I think in 2014 or early 2015. Um, but I think the, the, the problems that I address in here, or the, the problems that made me want to write this book, uh, are reflected in, in the, the, the current uh, crisis of our politics. Um, so while I think this book does apply to some of the problems we face now, it wasn't written for that, um, but I think it, it has something to say about that. And I think it has something to say about that, not because I'm so smart, but because the ideas of Catholic social teaching are true. And so they therefore apply to a, a, a wide range of of man-created disasters, I think is the term of art. (laughs) I'm beginning, let me begin with a little story. Um, You may remember this. This is sort of how I came to the idea of of what I wanted to do with this book. In in 2012, I think it was July of 2012, uh, President Obama was in Virginia, where I live, and he was giving an address he was talking about social responsibility in some, some way or another. And he made a comment that in any other setting or even delivered by someone else would not have been remarked upon very much. What he said was, he was trying to demonstrate the point that we're, all of us have benefited from, from social goods. People around us have taught us to read, they taught us you know, how to ride a bike, they taught us to be responsible, and all of these things that we've learned from other people, all these benefits we've accrued from other people and from society enable us to do amazing things that we're able to do. And so he said, if you have a business, you didn't build that. Someone else did. Um, and like I said, taken in context, it's not really that remarkable of a point. It's not uh, uh, certainly not offensive. Uh, but in that election year, coming from that man, and in the context in which it was said, uh, it caused a stir. The Republican nominee, uh, Mitt Romney, jumped And his response to you didn't build that was essentially, yeah, I did. Uh, He was responding to the party that says, uh, government is the one thing we all belong to, if you remember from their convention that year. Uh, Or as the the retired Congressman Barney Frank liked to say, government is just the name we give to the things we choose to do together. So if that's one party's view of government, or a stereotype of one party's view of government, the other party, the Republican party responded with I built it, I'm a self made man, we're individuals, and took personal responsibility and individualism to the extreme. And what you had was this sort of self-reinforcing feedback loop where one party, Trump, played up more and more the collective aspect of society, and one party emphasized more and more the individual aspect of society. And our politics has been polarized for a long time, but it began to polarize even more along these lines. And in the middle is this huge gap this huge gap where we live most of our lives. I remember in 2012 thinking, why are they talking about this this way? Most of our lives don't happen alone in isolation. Almost nothing we do happens alone and in isolation. And almost most things we do don't happen directly with government. They don't, they're not, uh, uh, our lives don't revolve around government. Most of what we do happens with other people in places and in settings and in institutions that are in between, in spaces that we call civil society. These mediating institutions between the state and the individual where most of our responsibilities lie, where most of our activity as citizens, as family members, as parishioners, as students, where most of this plays out. And both parties were missing that. Catholic social teaching has a lot to say about those spaces. And so this book is an attempt to introduce what the church has to say about those spaces. And one more thing before we launch into that account Catholic social teaching is often taken, especially when it's in the context of political discussions, it's often taken to be sort of a bundle of different prohibitions and exhortations, things to do, things not to do, sort of a policy platform for the Catholic Church. This, I find, is a very unhelpful way to think about Catholic social teaching, because before Catholic social teaching uh, is, is a collection of moral instructions, it's an account of the human person and what it means to be a social animal, the foundation for Catholic social teaching is the church's understanding of the human person, an understanding that is informed by and enlightened by the church's understanding of the mystery of the incarnation. The church is an expert in humanity, and she's an expert in humanity precisely insofar as she understands man at his fullest. et Spes says, the Second Vatican Council says, God reveals man to himself, and it's only in that light that we really make sense. That's what the church brings to our understanding of humanity, and it's on those grounds that she has something to say about who we are, what our nature is, and how we ought to organize our lives together. The superstructure for Catholic social teaching is four principles. There are lots of other aspects of Catholic social teaching. These are the superstructure, the skeleton, if you will, that all the sinew and flesh and bones are hung, or flesh and tissue are hung on. Okay? Those four principles are the dignity of the human person, solidarity and subsidiarity, and the common good. I'm going to outline those very briefly so we get an idea of, of the church's whole picture of, of society and our place in it. At places like Steubenville, we're familiar with the idea of the dignity of the human person that we all have dignity because we were made in God's image and likeness. This is true, this is important, this is the truth that the church proclaims to a society that desperately needs to hear it. It's also true that our being created by God is complemented by our being created for God. So our dignity and what we understand about the human person in the light of the Incarnation is not just something about our origin, but also about our end our telos, to use the Greek philosophical term. We're headed somewhere. We are made for community. We are made for communion, here and now, and ultimately forever in heaven. It is therefore natural for us to enter into societies. Uh, The word society in Catholic social teaching means several things. It means society as a whole, but the term society is also used, going back to Leo XIII, to describe what he calls true societies, social entities that have their own authority, their own uh, uh, principle of, of order. The family, for example, the church, which are not reducible to parts of any larger whole. We enter into societies by nature. We form families. We join the church, which is a supernatural society. And we form political societies. To conceive of society, to conceive of society as a whole, while ignoring these smaller societies into which human beings enter, is to miss the greater portion of human life and to ignore an important truth about human beings. Subsidiarity is a principle of proper ordering. We have all these different societies that make up and are within society as a whole, and we have to understand the proper relationship between and among those different societies. An easy way to conceive of this is to think of different kinds of authority. I'm married. I have three kids. I have authority over my children because they're my children. My relationship to them is different in kind than my relationship to my wife. And it would be inappropriate for me to treat my neighbor's children the way I treat my children. Because they're not my children. They're my neighbor's children and I should treat them as my neighbor's children. Different kinds of relationships imply different kinds of authority and different kinds of rights and responsibilities. Society as a whole encompasses all of these different kinds of relationships. My relationship with my pastor is different than my relationship with my boss, which is different than my relationship uh, with the, the guy who drives the train that I ride to work every day. Some of these social relationships are natural and an intrinsic dignity and authority all their own. Some are mere accident and aggregate. The point is there are societies that are more than the sum of their parts. That is not just individuals in aggregate, but real social entities with their own authority and dignity, rights and responsibilities. Subsidiarity is about ordering those properly and about ensuring that societies of a lower order have the proper protection from societies of a higher order. This means that when they need help, they receive it. It also means that when they don't need help, they're left alone. A society of a higher order should not interfere unnecessarily with a society of a lower order. Solidarity is a principle of responsibility. It's the principle by which we recognize that we have a responsibility for others, and in fact, a responsibility for everyone. It's also a virtue, a moral virtue, of practicing this sense of responsibility. Solidarity and subsidiary are often taken to be in opposition. You hear, you hear conservatives a lot talk about subsidiarity as sort of a decentralization and get government off our back. And that's part of it, but that's not the whole thing. And you hear progressives and Democrats talk about solidarity and togetherness and this collective principle. These are not uh, intention. They don't, they don't, they're not opposites. They're mutually reinforcing. Without one, you can't have the other. Here's what I mean. Where do you learn responsibility? Where do you first learn your obligations to others? Where do you learn to care for others, to help the weak, to defend them, rather than to attack them and destroy them? Chances are you learn that in your family, in your families, in your schools, in your parishes. You didn't learn that from the top down. These are You learn solidarity in civil society, where we spend most of our time, where we live most of our lives. Solidarity depends on precisely those social institutions which the principle of subsidiarity protects. When subsidiarity is violated, the result is a decline in solidarity. In communist Poland, for example, uh, they attempted to build solidarity by eliminating uh, subsidiarity, by eliminating competitors for solidarity to the state. Families, uh, independent groups, voluntary organizations were eliminated in, in an attempt to create a solidarity at the highest level. The result was the atomization of society. The last of the four principles is the common good, and in a sense, it's the most important. The common good is not simply a a principle of collectivity, uh, but the common good encompasses all of the individual goods, the good of the whole, and the good of all of the social entities that make up society. Properly understood, the common good and the individual good are never in conflict. It is never in my interest to act contrary to the common good. The state has a special obligation to defend the common good, to promote the common good. But all individuals in all aspects of society have an obligation to act for the common good as well. Understood properly, we can see how if the common good is never in conflict with my personal good or with the good of my family or my parish then it's always in my interest, also, to act for the common good. This is the superstructure of Catholic social teaching. A vision of what it means to be the kind of animal, the kind of being, the kind of person that enters into society. We were made for communion, we were made for community. So if we understand this broader view, a view that takes a lot from St. Thomas Aquinas, that was sketched out primarily by Leo XIII in Rerum Navarum in 1891, we can start to look at some of the problems and issues that face our society today. There are three areas I wanna to touch on. We won't be able to go into full depth, but I wanna to touch on them uh, because they're important and they're always important. The first is family. I won't believe this point because I think the people in this room understand that the crisis fairly well. Um, there's a crisis of marriage and family in this country, not just in this country, in a lot of other places too, but it's particularly acute here. It's a crisis that did not begin with the Obergefell decision at the Supreme Court. It did not begin with gay marriage. It began long before that, decades before that. The breakdown of the family endangers society itself. When our families break down, we lose the institution that is primarily responsible for the formation of new citizens, for neighbors, for future husbands and wives, for spouses. When the family breaks down, we lose the primary engine, the primary factory, if you will, to use a terrible analogy, um, for society itself. The family is where we get all the new people that are going to be in our society for the years to come. And if that's broken, we're going to get a broken society. Um, The crisis in marriage is exacerbated by the failure to defend life. Family, one of the interesting things about human family and human society is we all come into the world utterly dependent on someone else, right? Our our basic state when we arrive is helplessness. Um, And we also all come from a mother and father. That's still a biological fact. Everyone comes from a mother and father, and everyone comes into this world utterly helpless and dependent on others. These facts uh, are ignored today, as if they're irrelevant, as if we can ignore ignore those facts and still organize a society that will be healthy and thriving. Abortion attacks the family, is antithetical to the family, not just because it destroys life, because it professes uh, this lie, that if I did not choose you, I am not responsible for you or to you. And it takes the place that should be uh, where we learn our dependence on one another and our responsibility for one another, and it turns it into a place where the weak are not defended by the strong but are disposable uh, when they are no longer wanted. It sets consent as the absolute measure of human society and denies that there's any givenness to our human relations. A second area of life where the principles of Catholic social teaching are particularly important, and this is particularly important today and moving forward. The next years are going to be very difficult in this regard, I fear. And that is the role of the church in society. The church is known for the things that it does in society that are social goods. There's an incredible, almost unbelievable network of schools, hospitals, universities, crisis pregnancy centers, uh, clinics, you name it, that the church has set up over the last several hundred years, the last 150 years in this country especially, okay? The social benefit from these institutions is measurable. But that's not the primary contribution that the church makes to society. The primary contribution that the church makes to the society, and its irreplaceable contribution, is that it reminds us that politics is not the ultimate horizon for human existence. It reminds us that there are laws beyond the law of man, justice beyond the justice of the state, and that our true end is not here but in heaven. It shapes our souls, it teaches us morality, and it's an indispensable support for a flourishing democracy. The freedom of the church is important not just for the sake of the church. not even primarily for the sake of the church. The church has been persecuted before. It's not good for the church, but the church will survive. We have Christ's promise. But when the church is persecuted, when the church is not allowed to bring to the world the one thing that only the church can bring to the world, it's the world that suffers most. Because in denying the church its rightful place in society, society is being denied the truth about man. We must resist the attempt to see religious freedom as a concession from the state. Just leave us alone, let us do our thing. That would be nice, but we have to demand more than that. We have to demand our rightful place at the table, not just for our own sake, but for the sake of society at large. That's a very tough sell, but it's very important. How am I doing on time? We're doing good? All right. It's a short book, like I said. Um, So, marriage and family is a true society, the church, obviously social teaching touches on lots of other things. I want to look at three very briefly aspects of what the church says about economics and material goods. There are three sort of sub-principles of Catholic social teaching, the universal destination of material goods, the preferential option for the poor, and sort of certain questions about capitalism. I'm going to go over these briefly. If you have questions about them afterwards, I'm happy to do question and answer uh, and discuss these further in depth. But I think these are really misunderstood, especially in a society as affluent as ours. And so I think they're worth pointing out. First, the church speaks about the universal destination of material goods, which means that everything in creation was given to us to be used to advance the proper end of human beings, our own and those around us first ourselves and those we have responsibility for, then those closest to us, most uh, closest to to our own ability to help, and eventually to society as a whole. To use the things of this world as if they were given to us indifferently, to use them as if they are so much mere stuff to be disposed of as we please, is an affront to the creator who gave them to us. This is not only true of creation, as Pope Francis reminds us, in the natural world, it's true of money, of cars, of clothes, of everything that we have, everything that we possess. We have what we have so that we can use it to help other people. That's a hard saying in a country as wealthy as this. And even those of us who aren't wealthy are very wealthy. A corollary to this is the preferential option for the poor. It's often thought these days, for reasons I'm not entirely sure of, that we should help the poor out of our charity. And that's partly true. In a certain sense, it's very true. But there is an obligation that we have to help those who are lacking that is not an obligation of charity. It's an obligation of justice. Here's what I mean. If you have two children, and one is sick, and the other is not, and you have some medicine, which child gets the medicine? The sick child. right? There's an obligation to help in that instance where the help is needed. It's not whoever is most useful, it's not whoever could pay the highest price. Okay? Those who are most in need should re- have a preference in receiving assistance. This is very simple and straightforward. That's what the preferential option for the poor means. Those who are materially uh, deprived, are least able to care for themselves materially. And so, therefore, we, first as individuals, but also as a society, have an obligation to show them preferential treatment. It's become, well, it's not become. It's been for a while the case that capitalism has been taking a beating from the Catholic Church. This goes back to long before Pope Francis. And it's something that's relevant now. I want to touch on this question. What does the Catholic Church think of capitalism? I have a colleague at the Ethics of Public Policy who has a great phrase. He said, conversations about capitalism ignore the fact that the term has no analytical content at all, beyond some partial explanation that has to do with a certain theory of Karl Marx's. But most people use the word capitalism to mean whatever they want it to mean. And there's no agreement on what the term means. And so conversations about capitalism usually turn out to be pillow fights in the dark. In Chentez-Masinos in 1991, uh, Pope John Paul II asked, who offered some very scathing critiques of, of what we call the liberal economy. Uh, he asked the question, is capitalism the way forward now that socialism has collapsed in Europe? Is it the way forward, especially for the developing countries in the third world? And his answer was very straightforward. He said, it's obviously complex. If by capitalism you mean, a system that uh, within a juridical framework allows for proper use of economic freedom to grow wealth and distribute it, that sees that there are limits on what can be done in the marketplace beyond what simply the market will allow, then yes, that's a good way forward. Call it a business economy, call it a free economy, economy, but that's a good way forward. If by capitalism we mean a system in which there are no limits on economic behavior beyond what self-interest the market and the market will allow, then no, that's not a good system, and we should avoid that and work to correct it where we find it. Capitalism, yes or no? It's obviously complex. Underlying a lot of these issues, especially the economic issues, um, is a problem of human freedom. And in a sense, a lot of Catholic social teaching is addressed to answering the question, uh, what is human freedom for? I want to close on a slightly different point, but before we move there, I want want to read to you a quote from Centaes Musanus. It's not very long. This is John Paul Paul II's summation of Rerum Novarum* and of the whole of Catholic social teaching. He said, The work of the Church is to defend, quote, the essential bond between human freedom and truth so that freedom, which refused to be bound to the truth, would fall into the vilest of passions, to the point of self-destruction. Indeed, what is the origin of all the evils to which Rerum Novarum wished to respond, if not the kind of freedom which, in the area of economic and social activity, cuts itself off from the truth about man? We've sort of come full circle here. If we understand human freedom inadequately, if it's not placed in the context of its proper anthropology, its proper understanding of what it means to be a human being and what we are for, then our freedom becomes destructive. This is true in economics. It's true in politics. It's true in our families. It's true in our own individual lives. What does this all have to do with citizenship? It's very easy these days to look around and see large systematic problems and to, to suppose that there must be large systematic solutions. There may be, but I'm skeptical. The truth is that in body politic like ours, the character of the government is never going to exceed the character of the individuals who make up that society. Our dedication to living lives worthy of freedom goes a long way to determining how well our society will live out its freedom. If we do not live lives worthy of freedom, we cannot expect to be free. And we must live lives worthy of our freedom, our God-given freedom, not simply because it's in our own political or economic interests, because that's precisely what we're called to do as disciples. The best thing we can do to be citizens, the best thing for our country, for our nation, the best thing for the states in which we live, for the communities in which we live, for all the parts of society which we inhabit, is to be the best disciples we can be. We are called to be citizens. That's part of our call to discipleship. And we are called to be saints. That's not easy. Live like a saint goes into the category of things that are easy to say and hard to do. It's probably at the top of the list. But discipleship was never supposed to be easy. We were never told that it would be. The road to Calvary is never easy. Discipleship always leads through the cross. But because we have faith, we know that if we live lives of Christian discipleship, if we strive for sanctity, if we never settle for mediocrity, if we don't sell ourselves and our Lord short, then we can rest assured in the freedom that comes from living in the truth. Thank you.
0: My remarks tonight are based on the book, so there may be a few things that I talk about that, that, that Stephen didn't touch on, so that's, that's why. So the central question that, we, that, that we're discussing it seems to be, can Catholics be good American citizens? And Steven's response seems, seems to say be yes, but I'm not so sure. And by citizen, I'm, taking, um, I'm attempting to use what I take to be the, 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 the meaning from the book, which is not some legal formality, but is rather something like a member in good standing. Something like um, someone who fulfills the obligations that the society imposes on them and who views himself as a member of that, as belonging to that society. So to get at this question, I want to look at one of the oldest strands of Catholic social thought, which is that flowing from St. Augustine's work. And so St. Augustine says that a people is a gathering of rational beings united in fellowship through a common love of the same things. So launching from this definition, we are are faced with two questions. The first is, is America a people? Is it united in a common love? And second, if so, what is it? What is it that it loves, right? So answering these questions helps us get at that citizenship question, I think. So I read an article a few years ago that had a significant impact on me with regards to questions of this sort. The article was written by an upper middle class, highly educated woman, and she was recounting how, how much her and her friends had in common, how um, they, all, uh, they all drove Volvos or Subarus. She says things like, that. we all dress our toddler daughters up like Victorian dolls. We all uh, live in the same upscale neighborhoods, things like that. Right? We understand this. Basically, they have the same way of life. But then what happens is she has a dinner party, and she invites her friends over. And it turns out that um, some of her friends are pro-choice, and some of them are pro-life. Now, I don't remember, it just happened to come up, right, in the conversation. Now, I don't really remember exactly what the author's point was, but what I do remember is what I took away from the article, which was that the culture of death is not the culture of the pro-choice women. Obviously, the pro-choice women and the pro-life women lived in the same culture. They shared profoundly a worldview. It was not that one side in this discussion was living in the culture of death and the other side was living in the culture of life. No, what I realized was that the culture of death was, in fact, the culture in which abortion was an opinion like any other. The culture of death was the culture in which our whole lives can look the same. We can get along just fine whether, and, and whether or not we should kill babies is just a detail. Something that happens to come up at a dinner party like social security reform or whether you like Ohio State or Michigan best. The culture of death is the dinner party. So with this in mind, Let's get at the question at hand. Is America a people in the Augustinian sense, like the women at the dinner party? I say yes, more or less. So that, so if so, then what love unites this people? And I would venture to say that it is the love of worldly pleasure that defines us as a people in the Augustinian sense. Fun, leisure, fulfillment, self-actualization or something like that, raw physical pleasure. These are our shared loves. And which carry with them the corollary, which is the avoidance of suffering at all cost. As Augustine would say, gratification, which we mistake for happiness, is our God. And so we find ourselves in a situation. We want more freedom because we want to be able to do whatever we want in pursuit of pleasure. Nothing is more unpleasurable than being bossed around. And so we tear down anything that makes demands on us. We pursue the atomism and anonymity of the city and the marketplace because there we we are free from personal responsibilities, from duties and obligations, and it is there where we can make the money that we need to fulfill in equal anonymity our desires, whatever they happen to be. So we tear down codes of social morality and even the structure of the family itself because these things inhibit our freedom to pursue pleasure. But the thing is, All this freedom leads to insecurity. Alone, we are in danger, and this is a very unpleasurable thing. This is why, I think, the increase in freedom requires the increase in the reach of the state. The state is ubiquitous because individual freedom is desired everywhere, and this freedom can only occur on a playing field that that is policed by the state. So think about this. If all human interactions are consensual contracts for mutual gain. Then all human action has three parties, the two entering the contract and the state who enforces it. If anonymity is central to our our notion of freedom, then only the state can provide security without caring about who we are. The state takes the place of all other forms of government as the pursuit of personal pleasure and so a certain brand of freedom takes the place of all other loves. We don't need roots. We're free. This is possible because of the ubiquity of the state and of the marketplace, which I would argue are really two sides of the same coin. So this, I would argue, is the table around which the dinner party is seated, our dinner party. It is the structure that allows for our pursuit of gratification, and our public arguments are those that are going back and forth across the table, sometimes about details, what to order from the kitchen, when we should serve the next course, things like that. Sometimes they're squabbles over who ate the last roll or whether the platters of food should be passed to the left or to the right. Sometimes the arguments are nothing more than diversions, entertainment, mock arguments about irrelevant issues. The real business being, of course, the feast itself. If someone at the table pushes these arguments beyond such things, if they actually disrupt the meal, they are being very rude and will eventually be asked to leave. He will, that person will be expelled from what Augustine would call the city of man. He will be persecuted. So let's return to the question, can Catholics be good American citizens? At this point, I would say no. I say this because Catholics cannot sit at the table of worldly pleasure, even sometimes, even just when we go out to work or just when we vote. Catholicism calls us to a radically different love, the love of God and the love of neighbor. This is a sacrificial love that sees not self-gratification, but self-denial as the path to happiness. It is a love that is complete, that consumes all aspects of our life without remainder. This is the love that makes the church a people in the Augustinian sense, the city of God, he would say. The church in this view is not just another grouping of people that operates within a larger grouping. Rather, it is the highest level human association possible the association that consumes all other associations because all laws, all governance, all pleasures are fulfilled in charity. Catholicism isn't isn't just what makes us happy. It isn't simply the pleasure that we as individuals pursue. If it was, we could have a seat at the table and rest comfortably in the personal religious freedom that America will happily grant us. No, Catholicism is what makes all men happy. It is the solution to the fall to the reality of sin. Now, this is a radically subversive idea. It's subversive to the structures of the world. This is why the Romans threw Christians to the lions. It is why John Locke could see no way how Catholicism could be accommodated to a free society, insisting that it was not a proper religion at all, but was rather political. At at the pagan or the liberal table, Catholics are shockingly rude, shockingly antisocial. We're flipping the table over. We certainly aren't mem- members in good standing. So I don't see how we get out of being subversive and so a threat to the society in which we live. But this isn't the whole story. What are we to do? What is the hope? And it is here that I think my own understanding and Stevens are going to start to converge. First, as Augustine, of course, recognized, the city of God and the city of man are always and everywhere intermingled. Even in the heart of the individual, we are torn between the two. To the extent that God is the object of our love, we are members of the city of God. To the extent worldly things are, we are members of the city of man. If we stick to the dinner party analogy, there is one table around which sit the saints. There's another table around which sit the reprobate. Uh, And, um, oh, I lost it. Okay. Most of us, though, are kind of milling around. We sit down for a few minutes at one and then restlessly get up and wander over to the other. We sit down at the edge of our seat and are not sure if we're quite in the right place. We engage in conversations at both tables but are never really happy with our participation. So the project of conversion is precisely the project of settling down with the saints. But this is a project that we engage in socially. And this is the essence, I'd say, of Catholic social thought. We make progress even as we converse at the table of man. In fact, because we are naturally social beings embedded in a culture and in a language, I would argue that we cannot make progress in the spiritual life without wrestling with the categories and assumptions our culture imposes on us. We start to bend the conversation at the table in the direction of that of the saints. There is a, perhaps a beautiful irony in the way conversion happens, which is that because conversion is a conversion to the love of God and neighbor, we feel increasingly uncomfortable in the city of man precisely to the extent that we come to love its citizens more. We don't abandon them, but try to bring them with us, almost can't help but bring them with us. Or better yet, we try to get them to agree to push the tables together to form one table, to form one city with one citizenship and one social structure. This love of neighbor is what we mean, I think, by solidarity, which Stephen so ably discussed in his book and also here. It is also the foundation of the notion of patriotism. Subsidiarity also flows from this love because as Stephen explains, subsidiarity is about responsibility resting on the correct people. I ought to love those around me, and I ought to do what I can at my, level to, at my level to serve them. When the problem is too big, I ought to group together with others to form a higher-level organization to deal with the issue, and so on. The love of the city of God compels me to so act, and any restrictions on my action is an act of injustice, as Stephen points out. At one, as one leaves the city of man and enters the city of God, a mindset of subsidiarity forms. It is the way love of neighbor works. Solidarity and subsidiarity are then, I think, not policies, but words that we use to describe the practice of the love of neighbor. And this practice has structural consequences. As I described earlier, the state, which is a product of modernity and is not some timeless feature of social life, is directly tied to the loves pursued by the city of man. A love of neighbor replaces, as love of neighbor, excuse me, replaces the various loves of the city of man, the state would retreat. Not because government is bad. No, Stephen very rightly insists that the church teaches that government is good and natural. But because the state and government are not synonyms, the expansion of the state absorbs centers of government, which Stephen in his book and talk describes as civil society. The retreat of the state in the face of love of neighbor would reintroduce those other forms of government, a different structure forms, a different table is built. We can go on in this way the common destination of all goods, the preferential option for the poor, they too flow from the, co- the conversion away from the love of self and of pleasure and to the love of God and neighbor. Which brings us to the final point that Stephen makes, which is that the best thing we can do for America is to become saints. He couldn't be more right, as I think we would all agree. In fact, it seems that I have found myself in nearly the same place as Stephen in this talk, because sainthood Citizenship in the city of God necessarily includes all that is good in American citizenship. We agree after all, I think. But I would still push back a little and stress that we need to recognize the radicalness of Catholicism. Catholicism does not operate within America. Catholicism calls us to deconstruct and subvert those structures that have been built in this nation in the pursuit of idolatrous loves. We actually love America most by being its most subversive members. This is the reason that the members in good standing, the uh, the comfortable guests at the American dinner party, are likely going to find us intolerable, unfathomably rude, and like the citizens of Rome, insist that we change or leave. And for that, we need to brace ourselves. Faith and Reason podcasts. New media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.